Would you remain standing as we hear the word from the Lord from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And from Revelation 21, 9 through 27. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed, and on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a messaging rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third gate, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. 
And I saw no temples in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gary and Kim. It's quite a description there, Gary, all the jewel names, stone names. Um, So if you have your Bible and can turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at several verses that weren't on the screen um, that follow the passage that Kim read. Um, I'll be able to see those if you have your Bible or your phone with you. Um, I will admit to being somewhat underprepared for this sermon, and I've been told by many people, never undersell your sermon at the beginning. You're not supposed to do that. It's bad public speaking. But I have a really good reason for doing this, um, because my underpreparedness doesn't come from a lack of effort on my part. Uh, There's probably more hours in my preparation for this sermon than in a lot of other sermons. But the reason for that is because the complexity and the vastness of this topic today is large. That's a huge, you might say. It's a giant topic. It's the topic of societal renewal. We looked at spiritual renewal last week. Today we're talking about the renewal of society. It's a giant topic with lots of tentacles and implications and applications, and so it's a giant thing. And I have a friend of mine who says that a sermon should be as simple as possible. And so today I want to try and say just one thing about the salvation of Jesus and yet allow, hopefully, I've tried to put as many things in here to help you uh, give pointers to all the applications and implications of this great truth of what Jesus came to do. So I'm going to try and be clear. I tried to put in as much and as little into this sermon as possible, and you can go figure out what that means later, (laughs) because I don't know. Um, So let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we ask now that you would give uh, your grace to us here as we look at your word, as we hear your words from Um, Isaiah chapter 9, this great promise of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And as we consider this vision of a city, a perfect, beautiful city um, that represents all that you will do, give us hope now to believe it, uh, to find joy in it, uh, and give us faith in Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So most of you probably don't remember this because it was very short-lived, but Fox in 2014 had a reality TV show that was called Utopia. And they spent $50 million to prepare this show. They took, I think it was 16 people, maybe 15 people. They took them out to a remote area and they set up like this big area for these people to live. And they were going to drop these people here in this area, far away from everything else, and they were going to film them nonstop for one year, 365 
days. And they spent $50 million doing this. Obviously, there were camera crews there to record them, but they were supposed to drop into this remote area and form a society and be productive in life. And they put them out there, and Fox canceled the show after two weeks. Um, one writer from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette said, Fox ought to have called this show Farming, Fighting, and Fornicating, but mostly Fighting. Fox could have saved, he says, substantial production costs and achieved basically the same result by filming 14 monkeys in a cage containing only 10 bananas. <laughs> it's a little anecdote to say that wherever you find humans, you find fighting. You find fighting anywhere you have two or three humans gathered, you'll find fighting. And yet, there's something alluring about the promise of utopia. Right? There's something alluring and also elusive about utopia. Like anywhere you find human beings gathered, you find amazing, fantastic achievements, and you find devastating pain and destruction. Right? We're always seeking utopia. We're seeking flourishing. We want economic equity. We want justice. We want right relationships between people. We want peace, and we're seeking this. And there's something thrilling about experiencing it, right? You go to a big city, and there's architecture and art and culture, and you can feel, you talk about the life of the city pulsing, you can feel the energy of humans coming together and creating things, of creating life and art and commerce and when we are part of something that's creating that life, we feel most alive. I have a few of those memories. One of them was my ninth grade soccer team. We went 14-0-1, I think, and I didn't score very many goals. But we had a great season as a team. And as a team, we created flourishing. We were 14-0-1, and it was a moment in my life when I felt alive. And I think you can probably relate to feeling part of a community that's flourishing. And we want that. And we're drawn to the beautiful institutions of humanity, government, family, universities, churches. We want to be part of something that's thriving. In fact, that's last time I did this, I got in trouble, but I'll do it again, is quoting from our founding documents, right? The beginning of the Constitution says, we the people, listen carefully to the language, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Sounds an awful lot like what you might call utopia. We want flourishing and life and productivity. We may all disagree on how to get there, but we agree that the goal is a flourishing society. Human flourishing in every way is central to the biblical storyline. Central to it. It's the very heart of it. And the Bible has a word that it uses for what we would call utopia in a similar way that we use the word utopia. And it's the word, the Hebrew word shalom. Hebrew word shalom. We typically, in the Bible, typically, English Bible is typically translated as peace. The problem with that is that our word peace usually refers to the absence of something. Right? We are currently at peace with Russia because there's the absence of war. There's not a lot of positive qualities to our relationship with Russia, but we have peace because there's no war. Right? In my household, we say at 7.35 p.m. that we have peace because there's the lack of noise. We're still very tired, and there's not a lot of positive qualities to 7.35, but at least there's not noise, and we call that peace and quiet. 
But shalom in the, in the scriptures, the way the Old Testament uses it, is a positive thing. It's not just the absence of the bad, but the, the presence of the good. It's prosperity and completeness and wholeness and welfare. And, and it goes in every direction. It's spiritual and it's physical and it's societal and it's emotional and it's social. And so when the Bible talks about shalom, it's talking about full flourishing of human beings in every direction. And it requires community for this to happen. Shalom is not something you can have on your own. It's something that requires community, right? At the very beginning of Scripture, God says, he makes Adam and then he says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. He needs to be in community in order to have flourishing. Tim Keller says that God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. This interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom. People in communities living in harmony to produce life and flourishing and prosperity and health. Keller references this, uh, and I'll do it because it's Christmas, a scene from It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey is just feeling down on the dumps and he, uh, he is shown this vision of what Bedford Falls would look like without him. Do you remember this scene? And it's this scene of just economic injustice and inequality and there's just badness in general in the city. And the, the movie says, hey, George, without you, this is what the city would look like. But because of you, there's been shalom in the city, in the town of Bedford Falls. This is a little picture that we're familiar with of the difference between a thriving community and one that's not thriving, that lacks shalom. Now, you may say, well, what does all this have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with Advent? It has a lot to do with Advent. It has a ton to do with Advent. So I want us to ponder, Advent is this invitation to ponder three particular aspects of shalom in the world. Three aspects, three things about shalom that we should ponder because of Advent. The first one is right here in Isaiah chapter 9, if you have your Bible, and this is the promise that we know well. Listen carefully as I read it. This is Isaiah 9 chapter 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. The first thing we have to ponder at Advent is this great promise of shalom, the promise of human flourishing, of health and prosperity and growth. Sometimes we can think that the gospel is just about, the good news of Jesus is just about the things Jeremy talked about last week, renewal for ourself, renewal, freedom from guilt and shame. But no, we find here that the gospel is promising, Isaiah is promising through this child, shalom, like a flourishing society. And it's interesting, I think, that it doesn't just say shalom, it says the prince of shalom, that this Hebrew word is a word for captain. It's a word for anyone with authority, like a prince or a governor or a general or a king. And in Scripture, the idea of shalom in a community is deeply connected with leadership, with proper, appropriate leadership. And that's why Jesus is called, or the child here in this context is called the prince, the king, the one who has power to bring about and lead a society into shalom. And we know this. We experience this on a 
on a, on a smaller basis, right? If your football team is doing terribly, what do you do? You fire the coach and you bring in a new coach to try and bring shalom to your team. We see this all over and we have this in companies. Companies fire their CEO when things aren't going well and bring in and a different leader in the right context can dynamically and dramatically change the shalom that is or isn't present in a community. And so this is what we see is that the child is going to grow up to be a, a king, a leader who brings flourishing into every aspect. But immediately following this promise of shalom, Isaiah dives into the absence of shalom. This is what we looked at a couple weeks ago is this context for this promise. I want you to see just what it looks like, what it feels like, what it felt like for Israel to be in this place where they did not experience shalom or flourishing in their country. Like they're, in football metaphor, they're like in the midst of an 0-16 season. Like they need to fire their coach and get a new one because things are not going well in Israel. Look at chapter 9, and we're going to, I just want to, highlight a few verses here. Verse 12, Isaiah writes, The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouths. The first thing is you have these external enemies that are coming to devour Israel. That's not shalom, that's war. That's the presence of war. But then it gets more specific. Look down at verse 16. And Isaiah writes, for those who guide this people, that's Israel, those who guide Israel have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. This is oppression. Leaders who are not leading towards shalom, but leading towards oppression and injustice. In verse 20, it says this, they slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. That could be a literal statement about needing food, but it's actually more of a metaphorical statement about the way that they are attacking and devouring one another. Keep going. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. See, there's factions warring within Israel, devouring one another. This is not flourishing. This is self-destruction. But then it settles in in chapter 10 to something that God hates. Listen to these three verses. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression, those who decree are kings, those who write are prophets, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the room that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? See the picture of what's happening inside of Israel? There's injustice and oppression and bad leadership. There's people speaking ill of one another. This word iniquity, do you know this word iniquity? <laughs> The Bible uses it. You have different words for sin in the Bible. Transgression is breaking a law. Inequity, iniquity is related to inequity. It means something that's grossly unfair or unjust. God looks at what's happening inside of the country and he says, what's happening inside of your borders, Israel, is unjust. 
injustice, inequity. I don't see equity here amongst your people. God's judgment at Israel is aimed at their lack of shalom. It's not just their sin towards God, it's their disharmony with one another in lots and various ways. If you're paying attention to listening, listening to these verses, there should be alarm bells going off in your head. Because what's being described of Israel, I think, describes our current society very well. Right? We have, like, if you look out in the world, or even in our churches, we have failed and failing institutions. I mean, just, it's not hard to find failure in institutions in America right now. Right? You have law enforcement seems to be failing in a lot of ways. Healthcare system seems to be failing in a lot of ways. The education system seems to be failing in a lot of ways. It's, I could probably spend like six hours on this. I won't because I know it's depressing. But this is the point of this series is to look at the darkness. And that's what Isaiah is doing. We look at our government and it's, we're dealing, we spent how many months dealing with an impeachment? Like that's not shalom, right? There's nothing shalomy about that. We have, our government is giant and bloated. We're, what are we fighting about right now? Government shutdowns. That doesn't sound like shalom to me, where we have to go around and create temporary laws so that we can pass another temporary law so that we can raise the debt ceiling. That's not shalom. That's confusion and inequity. We have partisanship everywhere. If you look at our country's economics, there is economic inequity that is rapidly growing. The richest 400 Americans own the same amount of stuff as the poorest 200 million. The richest 400 Americans own the same amount of stuff as the poorest 400 million. I was looking at some of these wealth statistics this week, and um, you know Jeff Bezos has a lot of money. Right. If Jeff Bezos went and paid the, the Goldman Sachs CEO makes $50 million a year. Does that sound like a lot of money to you? $50 million is how much the Goldman Sachs CEO makes. And if Jeff Bezos paid that $50 million in one day to the CEO of Goldman Sachs, it would feel to Jeff Bezos the same way it feels to you to buy lunch. That's the relative wealth of Jeff Bezos to the Goldman Sachs CEO who makes $50 million. And this... This wealth gap is rapidly growing. If you followed news in San Francisco and homeless crises all over our country. Right? If you look at businesses in America, businesses are constantly abusing their customers and their workers. They're neglecting the common good. I read an article this week, very fascinating article about what happens when we return stuff online shopping and we return, like one-third of Amazon purchases are returned, and the vast majority of that stuff gets thrown away. <laughs> it's crazy. You buy three pairs of jeans, you return two of them, the company is almost for sure going to throw those clothes away. That doesn't sound like shalom to me. That sounds like waste. Right? In God's eyes, what's good for one person but hurts another, that's not flourishing. That's called injustice. Right. Even inside of the church, how many times am I going to have to mention the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast? <laughs> Probably a lot, right? Inside of the church, this is systems of injustice and anger and lack of shalom. The Roman Catholic sex scandal and just the celebrity in the church is not about the common flourishing of humans and justice. It's about power. Just 
culture in general, right? We've, we talk about this, you talk, I've heard you talk about it in conversation. It just is, feels divisive and angry and polemical and morally degraded. You spend three minutes on Twitter and you will feel morally degraded. That's our culture. Right? There is racism in our culture that is still systemic throughout our country's systems. Two amendments and the civil rights movement, they don't end this stuff. There is abusive systems all over the place. Now we have these other isms that we are fighting against. That's not to mention families melting down and divorce and abuse and the Me Too movement and just the naked abuse of power, decadence, affluence. Like These are things that are not shalom. They are injustice and inequity and societal darkness, right? Do you feel that? Do you sense that day by day? Like we, we try to like, sometimes we try to ignore it, but most of the time we feel that. We feel it when we get up and interact with the world. And so it's, can, it, we can try to ignore it, but most of the time, I think in our modern culture, most of the time our response to these things is to say, we can fix it. We can fix those things, right? Two weeks ago, I I threw out a bunch of political slogans. You remember these political slogans? Like, that's how presidents win elections is by promising to fix and provide shalom. That's what they're promising you is that we can fix these things. Together we can do this. We can fix it. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses, which verse is it? 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 9. This is right after the promise of a prince of shalom. Verse 9 says, The inhabitants of Ephraim and Samaria, those who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, listen to what they say, the bricks have fallen, but we will build them with dressed stone. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. This is what Israel was saying. Things are crumbling, bricks are being torn down by war, there's lack of shalom. Who's going to fix it? We're going to fix it. We're going to go in there and we're going to fix it. We're going to take matters into our own hands and we're going to solve these problems. And often, because of our achievement-oriented American culture, we think we can fix the problems. We can fix what ails us. And here's three underlying assumptions about our ability to fix it that I want you to to think about or to highlight here. The first one is that oftentimes we assume that these societal problems have to do with the mechanisms. We, like, we think if, if we can just change the mechanism, I mean, we can change the policy, if we can change the system, if we can change to a new leader, we can, if we can have a new governor, we can change, we'll have more shalom. I don't know what policies you want to change, policies about Policing, policies about abortion, policies about the interest rate, policies about justice. If we can just set in the right policies, then we will have trickle-down shalom. If we can just change leaders, this is one that's a mechanistic thing. If we can just swap out this bad leader for this good leader, then all of a sudden things will become good. And it reminds me of the time when Israel demanded a king from God, and God says, yeah, I can give you a king, and what's that king going to do? He's going to oppress you. You'll be like all the other nations, but he'll recruit your children and make them his slaves and his soldiers. And This is what happens. We, we want shalom so bad that we sell ourselves to leaders, and those leaders become our oppressors because the problem is not mechanistic. 
But we also often assume that the problems are simple. We love to reduce things. We, We reduce people to like a yes or no question. Is that a bad person or a good person? Is that a bad policy or a good policy? This is where cancel culture comes from. <laughs> Jim tweeted that one thing. He's a bad person. No more Jim. Right? This is, we do this all the time. That company has some policy I don't like. Therefore, no more shopping at that company. This is, this is what we do. We, we reduce things. We, we try and simplify. We reduce and classify and label and divide and try and make it so we can understand and we act as if the problems are simple. Read a lot of news analysis, most of the news analysis that I read assumes that problems are simple. Like if we would just change this one thing, then the problem would be gone. If we would just do this or just do that, we assume that the problems we face in society are simple. We assume they're part of, they're they're from the mechanism of the world. And then the biggest assumption that we make is that the problem is other people. Those people are the problem. That party is the problem. That judge is the problem. That race is the problem. That denomination is the problem. Once we simplify into black and white, then we just say, obviously, you and I are not in the wrong. So it must be those other people over there who are in the wrong. We come to these deep-seated societal lack of shalom, assuming that if we can just change the mechanism with this simple fix that other people make, then our problems will disappear. And yet our problems are deeply rooted inside of us. They're complex. They're systemic. And we're complicit. We're complicit in the darkness of our own society. There's a, my boys like to play with Legos. You break out a brand new Lego set, right? And you pour it on the floor. And it looks like disorder. It's not disorder. It's just unordered, right? And as long as you follow the directions and put all the pieces in the way they go, you come out with something beautiful at the end of the story. And we think that the world is like that. If we can just follow the rules and we can just get the, get the things in order, then, then we will have a beautiful society. But the problem is that the world is a lot more like a giant bin of Legos that has half of a thousand sets. And every day a bucket is taken out and a new bucket of random pieces is dumped in. You might be able to make a little beauty out of that, but there's no sets. There's no complete sets. That's the world we're dealing with because our problems are deep-seated and human. We have broken systems and broken tools, and we can't use our broken tools to fix broken things. We're trying to use the broken tools to fix themselves. It's a fascinating verse in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 11, where God says, Beware all you who walk by your own sparks. Beware all you who walk by your own sparks. And in the context of talking about darkness, I thought this was a really fascinating verse. Beware you who walk by your own. That's what we try and do so often. We try and light our own torches and create our own light. We need something better than that. This is the point of Advent is to be like, oh, oh gosh, we need something better. (laughs) We need something better than new laws. We need something better than different leaders. We need something better than new amendments or new policies. Those are fine as far as they go, but we need something better than that, something radical, something different, something powerful. My kids have these little flashlights that they use at their bedtime, three AAA batteries, last like three nights. As soon as you turn it on, it starts to get dimmer and dimmer, and at some point, they've realized, oh, this is dimmer than it used to be, and they come back every five minutes asking for new batteries. 
They need like a giant, powerful light. You need to flip on the electric, right? This is what we're talking about. The difference between walking around with the, our own sparks and our own little AAA flashlights trying to shine our light in the darkness. We need something better and bigger and brighter. And this is exactly what Isaiah 9, 7 promises. Of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. You make a catalog of darkness like this, and that verse has to sound so good. So good. Of the increase of his government and shalom, there will be no end. This is what Christmas is about. God is not just coming to fix our spiritual problems, but to reset all of society to where we live in a thriving, beautiful place without captivity and without oppression and without inequity and without abuse, but rather we live with prosperity, with harmony with one another, where each of us is fitting in our own space, able to thrive because of our connectedness with other people. That's what we want and that's what we need. And so we're going to respond with the third verse, I think it is, of O Holy Night. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Shalom. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Jesus comes as a king to restore shalom to the world, not just to fix our own selves. But the catch here is that Jesus refuses to be affiliated, associated, identified with any worldly system. He refuses to do that. He will not. He invites us to give our allegiance only to him, to his kingdom because he alone brings shalom and aligning ourselves aligning our hope for shalom with worldly systems is futile and dangerous <laughs> dangerous to our own souls jesus invites us to come and put our hope in him and in, in his coming kingdom king of shalom two implications to finish i want you to consider these things where, where do you have capital invested? Where have you made investments? Maybe that's emotional. Maybe it's financial. What, where, do you, where have you invested in earthly systems in hope that they will bring shalom? Where do you sense yourself committed? Certain economic systems, certain church systems, certain government systems or policies. Where if you, you're looking for the indicator of that, where do you sense anger and fear around certain things in the world? If certain things were taken away or changed, would you feel anger or fear? Those are indicators that you've invested in those promises of shalom. Where do you see yourself doing that? Where do you have existential angst about the world? I was emailing with somebody a couple months ago, and they were telling me that um, they were responding to a sermon where I talked about suffering, and they said, well, I was talking about suffering as suffering for Jesus, and they said, if you knew how bad things were, you wouldn't be saying that. Like, things are way, way worse than you think they are. And I said, they're way worse than you think they are, too. What's the worst that can happen? If what you think will happen comes to pass, does that dethrone Jesus from being the Prince of Peace? I think a lot of us think it does. <laughs> if so-and-so is elected, if this happens, if this happens, if Russia does this, if China does this, then... And we, we, we 
demonstrate that we've invested hope in earthly systems rather than in the kingdom of God? Where do you do that? Where do you have existential angst about society? Indicators that you've invested in those things. Or in what ways do you, what I have been trying to ponder this, where do I act as if my hope is in earthly institutions? I can say all day that I believe in Jesus and his kingdom, but where do I act as if I actually believe in or need earthly institutions to do something for me in order to feel good about the world? So that's the question for today. How is Jesus in Christmas, this Advent, inviting you to abandon your bad hopes and put your hope only in his kingdom? for shalom in the world. Pray for that. Ask God to reveal to you where you've put your hope in earthly institutions. So that's the first implication is to abandon our our investments in those things. The other implication here is that we are actually called, because of this reality, we are called to do justice in the world. We are called Doing justice is another way of saying bringing shalom. To do justice is to find where there's no shalom and bring it. And you might think, well, this sounds counterintuitive. You said there was no hope for shalom in the world. Because we know that Jesus is bringing shalom, we can work at the the local level to bring pointers to that shalom. But we don't have to do that with fear and angst and anxiety and anger. We can do it with freedom because we know that those Those efforts, our efforts, they don't have to be successful for Jesus to still be king. They don't have to be successful for Jesus still to bring his kingdom. He's doing that. And we point to his kingdom when we pursue and bring shalom. So where might God be calling you or bringing your attention to tangible local ways that you can bring peace and wholeness and prosperity and fruitfulness to your lives, to your street, to your workplace? Where do you see those opportunities? Where can you pray for God to bring his Shalom on earth as it is in heaven, while all the time placing your hope in the final kingdom of God. I had wanted to have that whole passage in Revelation 22 read. I'm just going to finish by calling your attention to it. I encourage you to go read it again. All these, all this description of the city, it's like it feels maybe pointless to you. You're listening to it, and why are we reading this passage? So, the whole point of this passage is to is to describe the perfection of this city. We start at the beginning of the biblical story in a garden with some trees and some plants and a few humans. And the end of the story is a city. That's not an accident. The description of the end is a thriving, flourishing human society with a perfect king in all perfection. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. This is the promise of a flourishing city where everything is right. Let's hope in that, this advent. Abandon our false hopes for shalom and look to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this title that you have been given, of Prince of Peace. Father, break our hearts for the places in the world where there is not shalom, where there is injustice and hatred and anger and division. 
Let us move into those places as you call us to, to bring shalom, trusting and knowing that we can't fix it. Only you can fix it. Give us hope, a settled conviction about the future, that you will bring a perfect city, that you will recreate human society in a way that brings all of us to a place of flourishing and health, prosperity. Give us hope and patience as we wait for it, Lord. We pray now as we uh, labor each day, uh, each week, to bring shalom to our families and to the world and to our society. As we give of ourselves in different ways, as we give uh, to this church, to, for this church to be a beacon of, um, of hope, um, not to our own shalom, but to yours, let us give with joy and, and grace, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.